Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equality, inclusion and diversity in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And today, I am delighted to be joined by Baroness Morrissey, DBE. Baroness Helena Morrissey has over three decades of experience in financial services, which include a 15-year tenure as CEO of Newton Investment Management. She is a non-executive director at the FTSE 100 company, St. James's Place Wealth Management. Helena is particularly well known for her work on inclusion and diversity. In 2010, she founded the 30% Club, a campaign for better gender-balanced boards, And since then, the representation of women on FTSE 350 boards has risen from less than 10% to over 30%. There are now 14 30% clubs throughout the world. And Helena also chairs the Diversity Project, aimed at improving diversity across all dimensions in the investment industry. Helena has recently been appointed the lead non-executive director at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. She was appointed a dame in 2017 and entered the House of Lords in September 2020. Her first book, A Good Time to Be a Girl, was described by Forbes magazine as one of the five most empowering books for women in 2018. And she posts daily career dressing advice on Instagram, as if that is not enough. Helena is married with nine children, and we're delighted that she has taken time to be with us today. Helena, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Julia. Pleasure to be here. So I've been really looking forward to this conversation. It's the 10th series of Diversity Podcast, and what a way to, to, to kick us off. Um, but there's a question I'm asking all our guests as we sit here at the beginning of 2021. You know, what's your main area of focus for the moment? Well, I think clearly uh, our lives have all been thrown into disarray and disruption by the pandemic. And I think that's um, as much true around diversity, inclusion and inequalities as in other areas. So I think that's become all consuming, frankly, and thinking what can we learn? What, you know, obviously ways of working have been completely thrown up in the air. And then also there are concerns that actually, you know, maybe women have been set backwards, particularly, and other inequalities have widened. So, yeah, plenty to get our teeth stuck into around that. And I think it's going to be a fascinating debate this year as we build back better, thinking about organisational structures and, and thinking about leadership and culture, of course, really matters at the moment as well. It's a fascinating year ahead of us for sure. But I wonder whether we could reflect a little on last year. I mentioned in my opening remarks, it's the, the 10th anniversary of the 30% Club as well. Um, I mean, I guess my main things are, you know, what are your observations in the context of 2020? And then we'll go on to talk about the 30% Club later. Well, I think we have come a long way in many senses, if we're talking about diversity and inclusion specifically. I think, you know, a decade ago, it was still a very much a special interest issue. I think people people didn't even pay lip service to it then. I think some of that, I'm afraid, still goes on, but it just was quite an uphill struggle to get 30% club off the ground, if I'm honest. And now, of course, I mean, it would be bizarre to hear a CEO say anything other than they were truly supportive of diversity and inclusion and that it was a top priority for them and in business context. But I still think there's, I'm afraid, a gap between the talk and the walk often. But I have to say, we have to think of it as progress, that we have moved. So this is everybody's issue. This is a business issue. This is all about diversity of thought, not just about identity politics. And I think that's something to celebrate. 
Most definitely. And thinking through also, I know, leadership and structures and, and organizational change. It feels to me that this is such a pivotal time that people can, and so the argument, for example, about flexible working in, in, in historically has been that there will never happen, you know, kind of shirk at home kind of the response to working at home. But of course, in one year, in a matter of days, overnight, the world pivoted as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts about as we build back stronger. You know, are there some very specific things that organizations should be thinking about? Well, I think every organization is thinking now about what it's going to look like. And, and nobody obviously has a crystal ball completely. But I was involved in the launch of some recent research that came out from the Global Institute of Women's Leadership, which is hosted at King's College London. And this was all research that suggested that both men and women want to have more flexibility over their lives going forward. I think it was only 7% of men and 3% of women wanted to go back into the office full time. And it was around 80% of women and 70% of men that wanted some flexibility to choose. So organizations, whether they're ready for it or not, are thinking about what's being called hybrid work. And I think that subject, that's that title, that name sounds rather clinical and not quite, you know, what we're talking about here, which is really making sure that finally, after decades, centuries even of trying, work and the rest of lives, you know, are treated as, as two halves of the same coin rather than squeezing sort of the rest of life into what you got left over after work or the other way around. So I think this is a huge breakthrough potentially. I mean, in theory, we could never prove that working from home worked, but as you say, Suddenly, overnight, we all demonstrated that it could and did. And I mean, all a whole host of things. It's not just around women having more flexibility around children, but so many men have said that they have realized just, just how productive they could be at home, perhaps because they're not doing quite so many of the other tasks. Um, I shouldn't say that, really. But, you know, there might be a little bit of that going on. But it's true that it really has changed the lens through which we look at this issue. And now people are thinking, well, actually, just how do we make sure that we can communicate well, that we can be efficient, that we can actually have that, that way of sparking great ideas of each other that sometimes only comes from those random interactions that we have when we're physically together. So now companies, I don't think anyone's got the answers, as I say, but they're thinking, how do we get there? And, and I love the fact that people now, companies are now collaborating around these things. They're not being competitive about it. They're not sitting, oh, we, you know, this is a, a competitive advantage of ours. They're, they're reaching out and asking. We're certainly seeing that through the diversity project. And certainly when we're thinking about, you know, not only attracting talent, but retaining and motivating talent, you know, all of this comes into play incredibly importantly. But I think you do raise an interesting point, which is about, well, many interesting points, obviously. But one particularly that, that, that sort of I wanted to pick up on was the burden of care naturally does tend to fall more to women in households. Of course, we have to be very careful about you know, what is the definition of a household. Um, however, it is, it is an interesting observation to be made. But equally, we're hearing more men saying, actually, I, I, I'm loving being more involved at home. I'm absolutely enjoying sort of being part of that. So, so it's fascinating to see. I wonder if there's anything we're at risk of overlooking in, in our appetite for change. I'm absolutely sure that there are things that we're a risk where we're looking. It's one of those things, you know, the, the great unknown unknown. And at the moment, I think what's happening, people are looking at different age groups of people. Clearly, there's pressure on young people, terrible pressure on even just finding work. And also then getting started, you know, and missing out on the real practical experience of being mentored physically by somebody in the office and just seeing how things operate and understanding how to interact. So that's a huge problem. But I think that one's being one that's being thought about. One thing I don't think has got enough attention at the moment is that I think we do miss out on a lot of the creative spark that comes from actually sort of physical interacting. And 
say I'm not someone who's skeptical about home working at all, but I've been, you know, recently I was on a two-day board meeting and you might think, oh, what's, that's quite tortuous in itself. We had 15 minutes break for lunch one day. And of course, what's interesting is that not only is that exhausting and people's sort of attention span inevitably sort of sags or just goes off, but also people, you know, just very formalized conversations and it's all done through the chair. People put up their hand. So you sort of do this very sort of back and forth with the presenter and so forth. And you don't have that real getting down to the bottom of a problem sometimes or going off on a side alley discussion or taking something just new, you know, someone says something and it sparks an idea, sort of reading the room. And I think that is something that's not being got enough attention at present. And, and as organisations are thinking about physical spaces and also uh, how they bring people back into work, hybrid working models, it's important to bake that in to allow the time for the creativity as well. Sure, I'm hearing some really fascinating discussion also about uh, wouldn't it be fun if you could create some virtual reality? That actually you can have people around a boardroom almost kind of creating that spark. And I'm thinking, gosh, imagine this application in the world of trading or in the world of the boardroom. I mean, it would be fascinating, but not for today. That, that is another, another sort of direction we could go off into. But thank you for your thoughts on that, because I do think there's a risk that we can overlook some very key areas as well. And, and I, I always describe the young talent as learning by osmosis which is, of course, how we learnt in our careers. Exactly. And they're not necessarily getting that today. So uh, so worth, worth paying attention to, for sure. Thank you for your thoughts on that. I now would love to talk about the 30% Club because I'm a massive supporter and a massive champion. And, you know, I, I mentioned in my opening remarks about the shift in really a relatively short period of time on the FTSE 350 boards as well. You've witnessed and you've paid such a guiding hand in, in driving these changes as well. I'd love to hear, you know, what are your proudest milestones and successes? Well, actually, I think a lot of people would assume that it is, you know, the, the jump that you've mentioned in the proportion of women on UK company boards. And now we're seeing that a bit more overseas as well. I think, to be honest, I'm much more interested in affecting even though I'm proud of that, and, and I'm and frankly amazed because it wasn't, as I said earlier, plain sailing. But once we sort of we caught the zeitgeist, and I think that that and there was such team effort around it. But I think the proudest thing really is that the well, thing I'm proudest of is that we run a big cross company mentoring scheme, which thousands, uh, I think we're up to something like six and a half thousand mentors and mentees have already gone through the scheme. It's in its latest, I think the ninth or eighth year, lost count slightly. And it's very much the largest cross company scheme like this in the world. And what's interesting about it is that women are much more candid about the experiences that they actually are going through when it's they're talking to somebody who's a mentor outside their own firm and usually in another industry. And then we have roughly half of the mentors are men. And they say it's opened their eyes as to the issues really women are experiencing that perhaps wouldn't come out just because they might be afraid of speaking up in their own organization. What I like about it and what's, you know, I think the most, you know, why I'm so proud of it is because it, it really genuinely changes the trajectory of, of women's careers. And it's very much targeted at mid-career women who we are often describe as in the danger zone, you know, it's kind of even at the beginning of careers. And then if people battle through, as it often has been seen, the middle stage, then they might get promoted and, you know, certainly get to be in senior role. But it's that middle stage often coinciding when people have, when women have children or bring up families. And, you know, so many men and women have contacted me to say that because of the scheme, you know, it changed what they did next, hopefully for the better in the long run. But, you know, touching people, actually influencing people's actual lives, uh, the women on board thing, you know, that's just a few hundred extra women, frankly, that are appointed to these very senior roles that aren't, you know, available to most women. But this is affecting many thousands. And so I'm proud about that. 
And I love the fact that you know you mentioned that men are coming forward, and, and we know that the power of mentorship has enormous influence. And there's a, another shining example of how. And we also know that the power of role models. We're going to talk about that a little bit later as well. But male champions really, really matter, and and and, and this mutual benefit that flows from mentoring as well, which is which is amazing to hear as well. And I know the motto of the Thirty Percent Club is growth through diversity. And I'm really interested, as as our listeners are uh, very engaged right the way across the diversity inclusion spectrum as well, I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts about where do we require further focus, the the concept of intersectionality and also reaching out right the way across the spectrum to see more diversity on boards. Well, it's a critical question because, I mean, I'm very conscious that the 30% Club was, you know, only about women and only about the boardroom, at least to start with. And that's just obviously, in my view, a starting place, not, you know, the be all and end all. Just to say we chose the slogan Grow Through Diversity because we wanted this to be very much about improving business results and to be seen as such rather than something, you know, obviously I care hugely about equality, but that's not in itself enough to get people to actually buy into diversity and inclusion, unfortunately. And we wanted not to include the word gender because obviously I don't think it's a everything it's a start um women obviously are half the population it seems the most obvious thing to start with but right now in the 30 percent club which i don't run anymore i'm an ambassador for it i mentor people and so forth but Anne cairns who is vice chair of mastercard she is now the global chair of the 30 percent club and taking it very firmly in the direction of intersectionality and we've discussed that recently and and obviously i completely support that and applaud that when we started if i'm honest it seemed you know it wasn't even the question of, well, shouldn't we be looking at other types of women and other types of diversity just because it was so difficult for women. And that was only 10 years ago. So I'm thrilled that now the focus is very much on particularly ethnic minority women and, you know, working very hard and using some of the same techniques that we did around sort of getting more women on boards to start with in other areas. And that also is, is what I'm doing in some areas like the Diversity Project, which is very much about every dimension of diversity and just trying to revolutionize, you know, who are the drivers of businesses, who are the leaders, and not just to have one type of person who's historically been in charge, continuing to, to rule over the rest of us. And it is lovely. I, I just always enjoy looking at the work of the Diversity Project. And I encourage all our listeners, not only within the sector, but also around the world to look to the Diversity Project, because there are many chapters within that then look at the networks in very specific areas, but also a commitment to the intersectionality as well. So it is, it is fascinating to see how structures can be put in place and really drive change as well, which is, which is phenomenal as well. Um, can we return to the question of role models and leaders? If we may. So, as I mentioned, it is proven time and time again that role models really matter. And you know, you're a shining example, as indeed are so many of our of our guests as well who do take the time to be on the show as well. What advice do you give male and female leaders about how best to engage with the diversity and inclusion conversation? Because I think right now it's a tough time. You know, we have to return performance, particularly as we go into a tough economic climate as well. But it's so important that they stay engaged with the discussion. Exactly. And I do feel it's quite a risk that it's deprioritized, particularly, as you say, right now when there's, you know, real business failures and urgent economic priorities. But I think it's a bit, it needs to be thought of as a bit like, you know, being nice. 
you know, you don't say, well, now times are tough. I'm, I'm going to be nasty. You, it's part of how you conduct yourself or generosity of spirit or whatever it is that you think is absolutely core as a value. So I think diversity, I mean, I was literally once asked, it was at a conference and I was, it was many years ago, but I was asked by a gentleman who said, you haven't really got time for diversity and inclusion. You know, do you recommend setting sort of a, an hour a week aside or something? And I said, well, you know, that's not how to think of it at all. It's very much should be part of, you know, it's like, um, you know, one of those candy canes that's got writing through it and you cut through it and it's exactly the same way you cut it. So this needs to be seen as something that's very much part of one's behaviors and thought processes and it's firmly embedded. Sadly, my honest reflection at this stage is that's not where we're at. Some people, obviously, some business leaders absolutely authentic about it but others they have learned it they are not quite living and breathing it they kind of forget from time to time and often at the precisely the moment when you need it most and you know that just shows that we're not we haven't solved this problem we're still at a relatively immature stage and that there is a lot of work to be done but that's when it you know it's got to be natural it's got to be absolutely part of how you think and as as we start navigating as i mentioned about the you know, the tough road ahead It'll be very interesting to see how we navigate through the next crisis and uh, those who do embed diversity inclusion into their true DNA as leaders, see how they outperform others as well, because all the data will support that for sure. You know, McKinsey and Bain and I mean, everybody's producing really compelling reasons, but it has to be sort of embedded in, in who you are as well. Um, and another area that, that comes up a lot, again, sort of returning to the question of intersectionality, plus also leadership, but also the importance and the value of allies as well. Uh, and I know the Diversity Project looks at this very, very keenly as well. Love to hear some examples, some, some real kind of uh, best practice, if you like, where you've seen great role models and allies, not only championing gender, but also other areas as well. Well, actually, I think it's absolutely critical, you know, shifting the, the dial on this issue. I learned through my own experiences, you know, when I started at Newton Investment Management, you know, I was a very junior person and within, and I had a terrible, I suppose, failure at my first job where I was passed over for the initial promotion. And yet within seven years of joining Newton, I became the CEO. And the reason was because I had tremendous mentor, tremendous ally in the form of the founder, and he genuinely, you know, he was obviously much more powerful than I was, particularly when I joined when I had no power at all. But actually, he provided both air cover. And then when I was, you know, needing more responsibility to be able to progress and so forth, then that was where he could, you know, do much more in terms of arguing my case, looking out for me when people were doubting and so forth. And I just saw firsthand, it just made all the difference between the safe failure in my first job and then success in my second. Similarly, the 30% Club, I mean, we would have never, ever have got anywhere if it had been women talking to women about women's issues. And the members of it are, are the chairman. And when we started, 99 of the top 100 company chairs were men. So Alison Carnworth, who was the only woman chairman at the time, you know, was a fantastic supporter, but we needed more than just her. So these, these chairs became not just sort of allies in the form of sort of patting us on the back and saying, you know, yeah, we're very supportive, but genuinely binding their success to ours. And that's apparently the, the etymology of the word ally, that it means to be bound to something. And, you know, it's not just friendship. It is going beyond. It is saying, yes, my success depends on your success. And I just think it's absolutely critical to affecting change, to have the people in power, inviting those who are outside it to, to join them and to championing their cause. 
Well, I think this is a great moment to turn to Cynthia Akinsanya for some research to support today's discussion. The business case for diversity in the workplace is now overwhelming. A 2019 World Economic Forum article states that by the year 2025, 75% of the global workforce will be made up of millennials, which means this group will occupy the majority of leadership roles over the coming decade. They will be responsible for making important decisions that affect workplace cultures and people's lives. This group has a unique perspective on diversity. While older generations tend to see diversity through lenses of race, demographics, equality and representation, millennials see diversity as a melding of varying experiences, different backgrounds and individual perspectives. They view the ideal workplace as a supportive environment that gives space to varying perspectives on a given issue. This demographic is sure to keep diversity and inclusion high on the business agenda. And thank you very much for that, Cynthia. Just before the break, we were talking about the importance of allies, mentors, leaders. We very much framed this around the discussion of building back better and why now it's so critical to really think about this stuff very carefully. But I wonder if we are in some areas, you know, are we seeing an overswing? Is it become the popular topic that everyone's hanging on to? Uh, what should we be mindful of? I am worried that there are pockets of resentment, I'm going to call it as a, um, give it a stronger word as that, that I think that initially, you know, we're having some success over the last few years, I think, about this argument that diversity of thought is critical to business success and results. And of course, we saw all the evidence after the financial crisis that, you know, groupthink is a real danger. And then, of course, business got back to usual and a lot of work was done around diversity and inclusion. And now I think there is fatigue in some areas about it and resentment that this is, you know, being hijacked perhaps as a sort of woke agenda, as people like to call it, political correctness, that actually this isn't about equality and fairness. This is about sort of cancel culture and so forth. And I do think we need to be on our guard for that because it's very disruptive. If we ended up with, you know, on the, in one corner of the boxing ring, as it were, people who genuinely want inclusion diversity. And then uh, another group who started off a little bit skeptically, who were kind of coming around to it, but then now see that this is not really about encouraging freedom of speech, you know, uh, actually op opinion sharing and so forth. That's going to undermine our efforts. And I think we do have to be very careful about that. And I just think that individually, any of us involved in this agenda need to keep reminding those who are working alongside us, those who are challenging us and so forth, that this is not about imposing some sort of worldview. This is actually quite the opposite. This is about allowing more people to come into the conversation, to express their views and, you know, not to have a fear that there's only one set of uh, criterion that will help them to succeed. And as you were saying before, many of the many of the arguments about why diversity and inclusion matters are very much commercial as well. Just to wrap off this uh, amazing discussion, we've covered an enormous amount as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts. It's a question I'm asking everybody. I'm quite deeply concerned as we go into uh, the next economic cycle, which could be deep and it could be long, is there's a risk this could fall down the corporate agenda. And it sort of builds on your, your previous comments, actually. And so I'd love to hear your compelling reasons why diversity and inclusion must remain high on the corporate agenda. 
So I do believe that as companies are looking for the next phase, obviously not the companies that are going under, this is, you know, that's an existential, or the ones with the threat of that, that they are focused firmly on existing and surviving. But many companies actually could use this as an excuse not to prioritize diversity inclusion uh, as much as they have been doing. I want to make the argument again that this is all about being modern, about being forward-looking. The world has been changing dramatically and quickly before coronavirus, and many of the trends that we'd seen before have just been accelerated and intensified since use of technology, for example. The reality is that what made you successful in the past is not necessarily going to make you successful in the future. You need all the brains, you need all the dialogue, you need all the innovation, and you're only going to get that if you have diverse people who feel truly included and can speak their minds. So I actually think the case has been reinforced by what's happened. I do feel it's up to us all to ensure that that is continues to be um, the, the central case, that we actually go forwards and don't go backwards from this. So I'm relatively optimistic, not complacent, but I do want to sort of end with the, with the call to action, actually. I think that we, each of us, can play a part in, in what happens next. And we can be a bit defeatist and say, it's all got too difficult, there are big problems to solve, etc. Or we can say this is an integral part of building out of what's happened, building from the ruins perhaps of 2020, and to make sure that individually we pay our part and to ensure our workplaces are inclusive. Inspiring words to see us on our way. Wherever our listeners are around the world, you know, whatever time of day it is, I couldn't think of a better way to end the show. Helen Morrissey, thank you so much for being with us. Julia, it's been just a pleasure and thank you very much for having me on your show. Wonderful. And as always, to all our listeners on Diversity Podcast, thank you for tuning in. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsania for her insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com. And that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. All our episodes are available in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app. If you enjoy Diversity Podcast, remember to share on social media and give us a rating or review. It really helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.